This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Embassy Row Studios in the crap, Father Soho, it's the Men in Blazers podcast. You still don't look right, Rog. You still okay. don't look right. I'm okay. Yeah, no, you're not. I'm alive. We've been talking for five minutes before this I'm podcast. I'm breathing. You met just. I'm still in you're the not, upside down, like you're Bob. Not, you're not well. I'm reeling from US soccer's Dunkirk, I'll admit that. <laughs> I, I want to say Dunkirk this Dunkirk was a result. <laughs> we were still in. Yeah. Dunkirk was like making the playoffs. We got, at least we got an away goal. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, we're still in. Uh, oh, I, I want to say this to you, David. Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Just how much the United States' failure to reach the World Cup has impacted me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't say anything about you as a person. Let me just make this like really clear to everybody, because I think we've got to clear this up about football. How your team are doing, whether it's the US or Brazil or Arsenal or Columbus Manchester Crew? City or Columbus Crew. It doesn't oh, say anything sorry, about Columbus who Crew. you are as a person. Just because your team are winning, it doesn't mean that you yourself are a winner. Just because your team are losing does not mean that you yourself are a loser. Yes, that, but then, at the same time, football is a refraction of life. And when it's like well, lifting, it is because you say it is, but it, it's not. It is because it's not like, really. It's like lifting up a rock. Big mistake because you see all the creepy crawlies that are just <laughs> chunnering around there underneath, and we'll get to that. Yeah. On one hand, Dave, I know it's just a game. I yeah. know it is because you keep patting me on the head and telling me that. Yeah. It's one of the most important, least important things in the world. Mm-hmm. But to me, Dave, I want to be candid. The past week, and we are just not even at the week mark yet, six and a half days since, it does feel like a real trauma, Dave. And I've realized, my wife said to me this morning, that I'm going through the five stages of grief. She said I move through denial quite quickly but I've stayed stuck somewhere between anger and depression. How's Mrs. B dealing with you right now? What, what, what can I learn from Mrs. B? Because Mrs. B, my guess is, handles, tolerates other words. In, this, in, enables. The way you are right now. What advice can I take from Mrs. B on how to how to appropriately deal with your grief <sighs> and Mrs. take it seriously. Mrs. B wants Brendan Rodgers to be the next manager of the U.S. <laughs> men's national team. So just for the, t- just for the press good. talk conferences alone. <laughs> but we're going to talk more about this later in the yeah. pod. Bruce Arena's surprise resignation. Yeah. Sunil Galati's even more surprising, but not surprising at all, effort to cling on to his job as U.S. soccer uh, presidente. But in my foggy hours of stumbling through post-Trinidad and Tobago life, I've been working really hard to try and manufacture reasons why it's all for the best that we don't all have to go to Russia with the American team. So I want to thank GFOP Aaron Studwell for submitting this article, a ray of sunshine into all of our lives, David. Please read. Yeah, an article from the International Business Times, uh, Rog. Russian cannibal couple sold human (laughs) meat pies to local restaurants. An alleged cannibal couple accused of killing and eating more than 30 people 
are believed to have sold human meat pies to unsuspecting people in Krasnodar, southern Russia. Dmitry Bakshiev, 35, and his wife Natalia, 42, last week confessed to multiple acts of cannibalism. But now, sickened locals report that the duo were also operating a small food business on the side. <laughs> Neighbours in Krasnodar say former nurse Natalia made and sold pies to local restaurants to boost her income and boasted to cafe owners that she could supply meat. <laughs> This has prompted fears that their victims' body parts have found their way into several people's dinner in the local area. Locals are reported to be trembling when they remember buying some meat from Natalia during the last decade. In a disturbing new strand to the investigation, Natalia is said to have told a neighbour, I bake pies. Asked what she filled them with, she replied, whatever is around. I love that that's the story that puts you in a good mood in the wake of all of this U.S. men's <laughs> national it, team doesn't horror. Doesn't put you in a good mood? My, I mean, my, my first reaction... It's a bit dark. It is. It's a bit dark, Rog. I've been, I've been watching Mindhunters, David. Yeah. But my first reaction is one of lightheartedness, and it is, on one level, the story is heartwarming. Mm. Take heart if you're listening to the pod and feeling lonely. A cannibal couple. There truly is someone out there for everyone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But on another level, it's a truly terrifying story, it I is. will admit. It is. And I want to say this, FIFA savages, because uh-huh. this story makes me, just for a second, glad that we do not have to go to Russia, because everyone knows that real pies, like the ones that we have on this show, yep. are made out of a mix of horse and seagull <laughs> meat. Okay, great. Thanks, Ron. Do you feel better now, David? Yeah, so much better. That me, was a really neither. uplifting way to me start neither. the whole thing. You know... I do want to do something, David. I don't just want a sad nap yeah. for five years. What do you want to do, Rod? I want to be a man of action. Uh-huh. All right, of token gestures. Yeah, okay. I, I can't be passive. I can't be unable to change anything. It's eating away at me, haunting me, because I still believe the 2018 World Cup's going to be massive. I mean, the ratings to tune into Rob Stone alone. Yeah. Enormo, right, I television know. man? Well, that is the... Now, that's the US... Appearance at the World Cup is Rob Stone's legs. Yeah, your chicken legs. <laughs> yeah. Your idea initially was that you and I both crash course Spanish so yep. we can host on Telemundo. Yeah, bienvenidos. Hombres on Chaquitas. Uh, yeah, that'd be perfect. We, David wants us to go all in on the Mexico national We team. go a little bit Mediterranean, a little Rogerio. bit Latin. We dye our hair and our uh, moustaches and beards black. Davido. And yeah, Davido Rogelio. <sighs> So that's plan A. Yeah, for Telemundo. We go all in. Yeah, we're ready. Yeah. Hombres in Chaquitos. Yeah, we cover all of the CONCACAF nations, cover the South American, Spain. We, moi, moi. We could be really good. Oh, God, do you remember when I went to Ukraine for the Euros mm-hmm. and I watched how the Ukrainian television cover football? Ronaldo is on the ball. They commentator. Every time he's on the ball, he goes, Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very politically correct. I know, it's Roger. terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. But Ombres on Chiquita, I feel like it would have more sound effects. And yeah. Lots Benny Hill sound music. Plan B, Dave, Yeah. for my frantic negative energy and general darkness and desire to get back into my footballing fast car and keep yeah. on driving, I've decided we at Men in Blazers, we're going to write a World Cup book. Oh! <gasps> Yeah, okay, good idea. To well, encourage, bring some like, levity, bring some comedy in. And to give some heavy backstorying to all Americans so they watch this bloody thing. You know, for the war effort, Yeah, needs must. Are you in, David? Would you write with me? I'm in. Oh, thank God. Thank God I've been writing away my own notes for years. You have. In order to, on in your, order on to, your Olivetti. <laughs> on my Olivetti, <laughs> exactly. Oh, so GFOPs, yeah. to launch this quite disastrous idea, mm-hmm. one that's guaranteed to 
piss on the dying embers of the book industry's campfire. <laughs> yeah, it's all going so well for the book industry. <laughs> Things are looking so bright right now. Coffin me nail. Yeah. So GFOP's listening. If you can design a putative book cover for yeah. our putative book, uh-huh. Rog and Davo's World Cup 2018 book. Yeah. Written by Rog and Davo, not Rogelion. Rogelion Davido. Hombres en chaquitos. Na, 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 na. Email them to us. Tweet yeah. them to us. Right, producer J-Dubs? Yeah. Send them via Twitter. Yeah. Send them via Raven to meninblazers at gmail.com. Uh-huh. And it's going to lift our spirit to yeah. ours being mostly mine. Mm-hmm. And the prize is a video message recorded by me and Davo, Dabo, Pesco. Yeah. Or Davido. To celebrate any family event of yours, a milestone, or even a voicemail message, we will personally curate in the panic room a message aimed to whomever you want, saying whatever you want. At your beck and call. That's actually a very dangerous offer, that. Yeah, it is. But we say, send them our way. Sketch them in pencil, on an Etch-A-Sketch, on a Photoshop, however you want to do it. We just say, I feel better already. Talking about books, Dave. Yeah. The most positive force in my life the past seven days Mm -hmm. was the pod that I taped last week with the Booker Prize-nominated wonder, Mohsin Hamid. Yeah. Casual genius, says J-Dubs. And he said this about the world we live in, which I'm going to use for my last words in the A block. He wanted us to believe in futures. He wanted hope. And he said, I think it's very important to resist anxiety that we think of ways of resisting the constant inflow of negative feelings. I think he meant everyone, not just me. Yeah. He said, you have to actually work hard to bring into being an optimistic future. Mm, that sounds like more like me. And part of the great crisis we, meaning Roger, and other listeners facing the world today is a failure to imagine, this is the important bit, plausible, desirable futures. Plausible, desirable uh, futures. Plausible. So I was thrilled to receive this suggestion, positive suggestion for an imagined, plausible, desirable future. A PDF, David, plausible, desirable future. From our book designing mate, Peter Mendelssohn, Arsenal fan, GFOP, who sent me a note last week saying... If Russia could win the last U.S. election, the U.S. must still find a way to win Russia 2018. <laughs> you never know. Get on it, Zuckerberg. I know you're listening. Yeah, you And you, never know. Jack Bloody Dorsey. Stop listening to the pod. Get on it. Oh, okay, Rog, your pod with Mohsin Hamid is up on our SoundCloud and iTunes right now. And this Thursday, we're releasing another pod special with the remarkable Darren Eels. He's an Englishman who left Tottenham Hotspur's front office to come and run Atlanta United. Whoa, they're doing well as the club's employee number one. Two and a half years before the team first kicked a ball. In the pod, Darren breaks down step-by-step step the strategy he has overseen, which has developed a massive, delirious, uniquely empowered fan base and approach to the alchemy of squad building, defying well-defined MLS truisms and scenes of 70,000-plus fans PDF. storming to watch entertaining attacking football in the South, a part of the country where soccer was never meant to be able to take root. It is the heartwarming, positive story we could all really do with right now. I can't wait to give it a listen. By the way, can I just say, shout out, uh, Rog, to your first chunky cardigan of the fall. It is my first chunky chunky cardigan of the fall. PDF, chunky cardigans. I'm trying to find happiness wherever I can. Was that cannibal pie story? Bit dark, David. Bit dark for me, Rog. (laughs) Bit dark for me. Okay, the Men in Blazers TV show, more bad news, returns in two weeks' time, Monday, October 30th at 6.30pm Eastern Time on NBC. Who's our guest? Tariko. 
high priest of oh. Tariqoism. Oh, that's good. If he can't lift our spirits, Davo, yeah. there are no gods. Yeah, <laughs> talk about PDFs. Okay, Rog, we've got a packed show. We're going to celebrate the Premier League's PDF. return by pretending that Liverpool and Manchester United's goalless draw was actually entertaining. <laughs> we marvel at footballing Mensa's Manchester City and their 7-2 demolition of Stuart. And we break down winless, goalless, Crystal Palace's demolition of the defending champions, Chelsea. Doesn't make me a worse person that my team lost this weekend. Plus, MLS, the NWSL, and the US. David, do we still drink Guinness on hombres in Chaquitos? Oh, yeah. we. Well, who knows? Tequila sponsor, wouldn't I? I know. Might go for the Modelo. We'll see what it is. Okay, Rog, to the football. I'm opening my can of Guinness. Yeah. Oh, I need this so badly, David. Just as badly as I needed the return of the Premier League, the return of narrative, of energy, and movement away from the stale, dead, decomposing air of the United States World Cup disaster. I wanted to re-engage. And when Rebecca Lowe came back at sunrise on Saturday morning, she said, I promise you, football can be great. And then we had to watch Manchester United's nihilistic display against Liverpool and hold our breath for the Monday wonder that was Leicester City against West Bromwich Albion. So I raise this Guinness to football and false hope and numbness. <laughs> Courage. Oh, it's going to be one of those pods. Yes, Rog, the <laughs> aforementioned Liverpool nil, Man United nil. An absolutely magnificent save, though, from David De Gea's go-go gadget left leg and some blown chances turned the most anticipated fixture of the weekend into merely an excuse for Rog to have a Guinness at 7.30am. <sighs> 4.30 on the West Coast. Mourinho <laughs> is going to Mourinho, Rog. It was a very Mourinho-like performance well, from his United. You're going to have to criminology this one for me before we get through this whole game, David, because I couldn't have been more excited to watch this early Saturday morning. United, Liverpool, old school northwest of England battle for regional supremacy. It's traditionally a game of passion, conflict, reputations forged. United's first serious test of the season. Klopp, Mourinho, Hugs, V Smugs. Both managers surely going to want to deliver a swaggering statement of intent, right, Davo? Nope. What followed? 90 minutes of premium mediocre. To see a United team roll into Anfield and essentially spend 12 rounds covering their face with their gloves. A sight to behold. Yeah, there have been a lot of nil-nil draws in this game, Rog, over the years. It's not rare to go and get a nil-nil draw. And I know that we have this tendency in uh, football to only remember these sparkling displays of Man United sides at Anfield, to only remember the most sparkling moments of Sir Alex Ferguson's reign. It is not, it is not sort of outside the scope of Premier League football to think... <laughs> that a really good team goes to play another really quick, really good team and defends and plays somewhat defensively. Well, let's break that one down a few levels. Yes, go. I mean, it was seen from the off as if United's game plan was to look worse than Dormy and Sideburns. <laughs> I mean, Mkhitaryan, a That probably was. That was probably exactly what was in the change room <laughs> you know, before the, the game. Point. See, yeah. everyone, look Picture, at Dormy and Sideburns. Side look Ask at them now. Worse. Yes, now look at the tactical board. <laughs> I have drawn Dormy and Sideburns. I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Herrera yeah. is like a malfunctioning Westworld host. Mm -hmm. And the only United player really shone was my beloved Fellaini yeah. in his injured absence, Dave. Without him, that dominating kind of midfielder, Sir Robert Strong, 
character. Liverpool controlled this game. Wijnaldum charging, Salah harrying like Sirio Farrell. And Joel Matip, oh, he had the best chance. David De Gea, with that Jonathan Quick kick save. You know, when you watch saves, I've said this before, when you watch saves in slow motion replay in the Premier League, and you see a good save in live action, when you watch it in slow motion replay, you always think, oh yeah, it would have been, if he let that in, actually, it would have been a terrible, it would have been a howler if he let it in. Most saves don't look very good in slow motion replay. This was one of those saves that in slow motion replay, it just looked outstanding. Even better. Even better. Even better in slow motion replay. It did. It looked like a, a graceful kind of gazelle. Yeah. Running on the savannah yeah. in the Discovery Channel documentary. He makes the superhuman seem routine. He is Inspector Gadget. <sighs> He's rightfully a Blondor nominee. Do we agree? Yeah, totally. I mean, his ratio of exceptional saves to saves is almost one to one. He's remarkable. And he does it all with that kind of blithe, stray cat cool, which just seems to me to be the foundation of everything that is good about this United team defensive I don't bother chasing mice around. Whoa, no. Uh, at first, I was sure Mourinho was just trying to have his team bide their time, allow Liverpool to stretch the supply lines and then counter through some Ashley Yang kind of foray, essentially sit on Liverpool like a big brother emasculating their little one. But in the second half, when I expected United to uncoil, start to assert themselves, they didn't. They didn't really emerge from their back 10 formation. Six touches in the opposition area all game. I mean, Liverpool camped around that United box, flicks, fates, flutters, but neither side had a shot on target in the second Mm. half. Klopp's side really just indulged in the footballing equivalent of endless, agonising foreplay at Benjamin J. Dawson. Problem with tantric soccer is you only have 90 minutes to finish. If Mane was on the field, though, it would have been 3 or 4-0, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to miss Mane. He's one of those players who can play between the lines for them and break down, you know, a resolute team, you know, packed into their lines. They played their lines, Man United. And, you know, like a lot of Mourinho sides, they really hold their discipline. They really hold it together. And they've got some players who can go and do that. I did think that Mourinho's post-match press conference was fascinating by his admission of exactly what he did. He didn't try to deny what had happened, which is usually the Mourinho thing. It's like, no, you, we, we saw a completely different game. If you, you saw that, no, you didn't understand it. He frankly admitted that Liverpool, what am I meant to do against a team that is faster than my team, a team that is more skill, a team that, uh, that, that can play between the lines? We have to do that. There's no other choice. You have to do that. And so he played it a certain way and was successful in that. I think the question is, and by the way, Mourinho has won the title many times doing this yeah. in certain away fixtures. By the way, the irony is, particularly at Manchester United, is where he used to do this for Chelsea. <laughs> Every single, always at Man United is where he used to do it. The question is in this season, and we'll get to Man City in a second, when Man City are so explosive across the other side of Manchester, can he get away with doing that? With the Reds yeah, of Man United. Uh, you, we say this is a big game against a big team, but that Liverpool defence, Davo, no disrespect, they'd leaked 14 goals in seven games before this weekend. Mm-hmm. United had scored an average of 3.2 goals per game before this. I mean, you are an expert in Mourinhoology. I will bow down to your analysis. But shouldn't we expect more? Or are you just saying Mourinho's job is win titles, ends justify the means, this is how he does it? Yeah, I don't, I, it was not surprising at all to me what Mourinho did. Having said that, if Mourinho had completely thrown away the playbook and done something completely different, that wouldn't have surprised me either. But in hindsight, it doesn't surprise me he did it at all. 
I think the question is, he's going to look foolish if Man City continue to do what they do, like when they went down to Chelsea and actually they got Antonio Conte to blink. He was the one that suddenly played a more defensive formation and they went out on, on all that attack. He's going to look foolish with the Crosstown rivals doing that. But I think this is no surprise based on what Jose Mourinho, love him or loathe him, this is what he does is he tries to, he's a, it's a campaign. He's, he's trying to fight a campaign. And he's a Grinch. He's yeah. a Grinch. I mean, he loves spoiling others' fun. He does. He and takes he did. pleasure look in it. Look how unhappy Jurgen Klopp was at the oh, end of this game. I mean, he's, I've never seen him look so unhappy. I once asked Jose if he takes as much pleasure from rendering the opposition impotent. I said emasculating the opposition mm. as he does when his team score goals themselves. And he didn't waste a second before responding. He looked at me like I was an idiot. He goes, of course I do, of course. As if it was stupid to even ask the question. Mm, in and your I, chunky cardigan. And I do think, yeah, was I wearing a chunky? <laughs> Probably. I was wearing two. <laughs> I was Steve Bannoning it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, do, I think if City weren't comparing and contrasting by hanging touchdowns on yeah. their opponents, this nihilistic approach wouldn't have been so glaring. But I do believe... When your squad is one of the most expensive ever assembled, to blame your lack of a bench is truly befuddling. And I think a lot of my Manchester United mates, that's what is of most concern for them. When they've spent that much, the hopes are there. The style of football they've played at times has been ebullient. To then turn around in this game and do that is, I wouldn't say terrifying, I'd just say befuddling. A lot of other Man United fans, maybe these are more my mates, were happy to see Jurgen Klopp looking so unhappy at the end of the game. Um, I would say, though, Liverpool do terrify other teams with their speed. And I think Mo Salah particularly is a player who is becoming almost impossible to defend. Quick word on Klopp, David. Just past his two-year anniversary of his arrival at Liverpool Football Club. Constant nagging comparison that he's not done much better, not done better at all than Brendan Rodgers, points-wise, in the same time period. What do you make of the Teutonic Care Bear at two years of age? He's been a gift to the Premier League. I think he's been a fantastic manager for Liverpool. And I think he's got a hell of a lot out of the players that he has there. And we've seen a lot of players really improve under him on that team. And I think tactically, he's worked some wonders with some of his players. You think of what he's done with, with James Milner. You think of like the you know, tactical versatility that he's got out of a player like Emre Chan. I think he's done really, think he's done really good job with Lalana as well. I think the question is, is that... Why on earth have they continually not bought defenders? Why have they just ignored building up the defence or put so much into just trying to find one player in this off-season? I think that's the only question about him. But I think he's been a good manager. The Premier League is tough. You know, a lot of the stuff that goes on in football is that there's this assumption that everyone can win. Everyone can't win. You know, a lot of talk about the US Soccer Federation right now. All we've got to do is we've got to organise and get much more organised and go and do it. You know what? If the whole world gets organised, the Germans still win. Like it's a like not everybody can go can go and do it. Sport has winners or losers. However good Liverpool are this season, however much better he was doing, are they going to be as good as Man City? Are they going to spend that much money? Are they then going to have that much class on on their team? So I think he's been I think he's been pretty good. Liverpool, they are a remarkable club. I mean, they have such a huge fan expectation, such a historic yearning. Huge expectations, also based on Jurgen Klopp's kind of larger than life charisma couple with nagging doubts about their American owners. Really, I think for me, those are part fear of the foreigner and part a reality that Manchester City and Manchester United are super clubs. Liverpool are merely very, very, very wealthy in comparison. And what Jurgen Klopp does, I mean, what he does at Mainz, 
what he then did at Dortmund. He club builds, he transforms the entire institution, not just squad build, but he leaves the entire infrastructure of the club from the youth academy mm. all the way through to that kind of first team infrastructure overhauled under his watch. He's like an indie firebrand. He's populist. And it takes longer than two years. Really, we should give him four, but no one gets four years in this knee-jerk Premier League, no patience kind of culture. So judge him after another year. And please, 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 we've got to resist the urge to do so before. Yeah, what I would say about him is Brendan almost felt like a throwback Liverpool manager, right? A, A manager who could... Like who felt familiar to the traditions of the club. I think what's impressive about Klopp is he feels like someone who can, who can respect the traditions of the club, but also move them forward to go and become a new Liverpool, still in touch with who they've been in the past. That's the hope of him. Ultimately, though, sport, football, is about winning things. And these fans rightly expect to win titles. They've never won the Premier League title, Rog. Liverpool Football Club, this... this 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 club with the most amazing amazing history have never won the Premier League. It's almost as I say it, I feel like I've got to fact check myself because it can't possibly be true that Liverpool have never won the Premier League. But they have never won the Premier League, and their fans want to win the league title. I prefer to look at it that they've won it as many times as Everton. PDF, <laughs> PDF, potential desirable futures, David. Yeah, talking about desirable futures, Manchester City seven. Stoke 2, it doesn't really matter. Stoke could have scored 5, Rod 6 and still lost. It's a good thing being don't have Premier League rights because Ray Hudson would have been in a state of exhausted delirium after this one. Goals from most of the Man City first team and half of the reserves leave Stoke in a lifeless heap on the Etihad turf. A warm welcome back to City for Stoke manager Mark Hughes. Pep Guardiola, he doesn't like being positive in public. But after this game, Watching his team hogtie Stoke in the Mark Hughes Memorial Derby. He said, always you can do it better. But today, I cannot deny, was maybe the best performance since I arrived here. He also called Stoke Peter Crouch's team, which I thought was bold. (laughs) God, City, I don't know how to say this. They're just playing higher revolve football than the Premier League has seen in recent history. Yeah. I mean, the kind of goals they're scoring... Next level, run and gun. We were talking about it yesterday. They're like the Showtime Lakers, the 1980s era Los Angeles Lakers. David Silva to Kev De Bruyne to Gabriel Jesus. It's like Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy. Yeah, no, I mean, at some points during uh, this game, I was counting the number of players uh, playing in City's colours and the number of players playing in Stokes' colours. It was as though it couldn't possibly be 11 on 11 or were the city players on roller skates were they did they have some kind of were, were there parachutes that the stoke players were pulling behind them where are they hiding their horses it was a really yeah it was cavalry versus infantry this game in the cavalero versus uh, versus infantry in every single way it is just they are playing different level football right now and what i like about it because i know People get on us for never giving enough respect to Manchester City because we've always teased Jonathan Williamson for enjoying Manchester City way too much when they just were never that much fun to watch. He was early on them. But what is different about City to me, to my eyes, this season, is that they are playing a more expansive form of football. There are a lot more longer thrusting runs passes crosses they're scoring so many different kinds of goals there's a lot more heft there's a lot more weight there's a lot more strength and power to their game it's it's becoming 
less a sort of Barcelona light and more a sort of Holland 1974 kind of football. I, I am actually starting to really get into this. What was fascinating to me was, you know, we've mocked um, Pat last season roundly, the English press, for saying things like, you know, my players don't really do the tackles and defending not so much and attacking and defending, not, they're not different aspects. It's all holistic. In this game, Stoke City actually had the temerity to offer minor resistance with some razzle-dazzle passing of their own, pulling the score back to 3-2. And that's when I understood how Pep Guardiola connects attacking and defending. They're utterly connected for him because his team then lived a surreal next-level concept of thinking by going into an attacking hyperwarp to defend that lead. 55th minute, Man City 3, Stoke 2, game on, J-dubs. 63rd minute, Man City 6, Stoke 2, KDB being subbed off. Six different goal scorers, five different assist creators, seven players, amazing this, with pass completion rates of 90% or over. Uh, So many guns, as Mike Myers would say. Yeah, my observation is that they're not probing. You know, a lot of Premier League teams probe. They probe and press and try and sort of move slowly up the field to see if they can get into an attacking position to maybe uh, get a potential shot on goal. Man City seem to just go all out incisiveness to try and score as many goals as possible, to get as many scoring opportunities per minute almost as they possibly can. And they honestly, they could have scored 14 in this game. It could have been 14-5 the score it could have been but they decided the game was over in the 66th <laughs> minute they took off Kevin De Bruyne the unassuming master of destruction job done I mean god it was his 100th appearance for the club he'd been at the heart of everything a total destroyer there were some disguised passes he had in this game the no look pass to Sané to set up the second goal one that took out five Stoke defenders and was born of instinct repetition on the training ground superlative telepathic preternatural skill I mean the kind, I think if it continues, will know KDB if he can do this consistently in that kind of exotic Premier League ether that we place the Zolas, the Bergkamps, the Cantonas, players who just operate on a higher level than all those around them. Stats staggering. City scored now 17 times in their last three home games. First top flight team to net 29 goals in their first eight league games since the mighty 1894-95 Everton team. Mm. Oh, so happy back in 1894, yeah. Dave. And they're the first team to win three straight Premier League games by five or more goals. Even more shocking, we're living in a Premier League world where Raheem Sterling has scored as many league goals as Harry Bloody Kane. It's a kind of football that even Pep Guardiola couldn't have dreamt of. He's even got Raz uh, playing good football, Rog, and John Stones as well. Talking about good football... Palace 2, Rog, Chelsea 9. No, that didn't happen. Chelsea 1, the first team in English Football League history not to have won a game or scored a goal in their opening seven games knocks off the defending champs. A Dave Azpilicueta own goal, Rog, opened up the scoring in the 11th minute. Chelsea hit back seven minutes later through Bakayoko, but in the 45th minute, it was the local lad, Rog, who set this game alight. Wilfred Zaha... Mm. Uh, of Croydon and the Ivory Coast on his return from injury, <laughs> steering the ball past Tibbet. I think it was Roy who gave up on him for England. What part of the Ivory steering, Coast are you from? Steering oh, the, the Croydon ball, part. Croydon. Steering the ball past Thibaut Courtois and earning Palace their first points of the season. <sighs> I had a kickoff. I was trying to think about what 
size of a mismatch this was. And I thought about myself. I often think about this, getting into the ring against Mike Tyson in his prime. That's what this felt like. Or, or Trinidad and Tobago hosting the United States. Too soon, says Rob Stone. Too soon. But looking for their first big boy goal in their eighth game, they got it against a superbly sloppy Chelsea. And the goal came just as Roy Hodgson had probably drawn it up on the training ground, David. Yeah, let's get the ball wide. Let's knock it in. It's going to rebound. We're going to rebound off the big Brazilian. Rebound off him. And then maybe maybe someone get a touch on it. And then it hit Dave. And then Dave, it will just go in past Thibault Courtois. It'd be wonderful. Yeah, as Roy Hodgson wrote on his pre-game tactic board, score a big boy goal then, would you? <laughs> and they did. They did. It doesn't matter how they go in. Mm. They all count. Unfortunately... For Rebecca Lowe's Crystal Palace, Chelsea back on level terms within six and a half minutes. Crystal Palace go all Liverpool marking at the back. And back of Yoko, oh, he rose higher than that Miami Dolphins offensive line coach, David. Yeah, absolutely. And then you think, oh, we've seen this before. Plucky team gets a goal. Zaha's back. They're looking much better. Exploiting a little bit of Chelsea, being without their you know player of the year, uh, N'Golo Kante. But you know Chelsea, they're back in now. They've scored a goal. I certainly thought that was it. That Chelsea were going to come back in. Then Palace did to Chelsea what Chelsea do to so many teams. They scored a goal in Judge Ivor Bennett time. Uh, sloppy decision making at the back. They try to keep the ball alive from the header. Uh, Bakayoko heads it puts William in trouble. William gets chased down uh, by Saka. William had a terrible game, by the way. He looks like he's gained a freshman 15. Actually, maybe a freshman 25. Uh, and, you know, ball breaks to Zaha. Zaha looks faster than any player on the pitch. Amazing. Uh, comes through, uh, hits it, corners it. Rog right side netting. That first touch totally bewildered the Chelsea batline. The finish, oh, such a quivering quality to it. He'd been so potent all game long, Zaha. Oh, take that, Gloria. I'll say about your Chelsea, this is an odd thing because we admire them for so many different things, Antonio Conte's Chelsea. They have no bounce-back ability, that quality that you love when they're down at half-time. That stat, I think they've lost seven of their last eight when they're trailing at the break. And so that was it. Huge dominant team travels to a pathetic minnow, an own goal, a 2-1 shot win. We've seen that before. At Tim Lal wonders, did Crystal Palace just need the extra motivation of upsetting Davo this whole time. Yeah, well, it's just a slightly complicated fixture for me because of my mate Steve Parrish. I have Crystal uh, Palace owner, Crystal Palace owner Steve Parrish, childhood friend of mine, reconnected with him through Men in Blazers. We've become very close again, and it's been really tough uh, for all of us to watch what Steve's been going through this season. And I got to tell you, there has never been a Chelsea game. I'm not just saying this in hindsight. I I messaged him before the game. There has never been a Chelsea game that I've been more ambivalent about how we're doing it. I just want to see Palace. Uh, score a goal I want to see Palace win I want to see Palace stay up so it's slightly it's just odd. the game says and David. then there's there's another thing going on it's which is this season so big hearted no but it's also this season you look at City you look at how good they are United Tottenham this isn't going to be Chelsea's year and for me as you know football is about winning I don't think we're going to win the league this year I think Chelsea are going to be a top six team I think they're going to be a pretty decent Premier League team I don't think they're going to be better than that I think they're a team in transition we saw how much they missed their two best players N'Golo Kante and Morata suddenly we didn't have an outlet to go and score we didn't have a guy to go and sort out stuff in the middle of the park and we've now see how Palace have struggled without their best player uh, Wilfred Zaha but Chelsea you're thinking title challenge over but this is a team who can win at Atletico Madrid yeah 
even though they lose at Crystal Palace shortly afterwards. Yeah. You're thinking Champions League run, aren't you? I think Champions League run for this team and maybe a rebuilding over the next few years. I mean, it's no seeing how well some of these Chelsea loanees are doing. We're seeing a whole new generation of Chelsea players come up. Uh, some of them getting a chance very near around the first team, seeing Tammy Abraham knocking him in at Swansea. I think we've got sort of a changing of the guard going on at Chelsea. Content, I still think good things segueing out the death rattle of his. I think era still good things ended. are going on. Uh, good things are going on at the club. This is not their year in the Premier League, but I think they're going to be a pretty good team in Europe. Arguably, a squad that's built for one campaign and one campaign only. Yeah. Last year it was the league. This yeah. year you've refocused your attention. Yeah, I mean, this game to me was Chelsea's thin squad fears made real. You mentioned the injuries to Kante and Morata, Chelsea's yeah. engine, Chelsea's hood ornament. They started the extremely poor to me. Do you agree? Yeah, bats, totally. Bats to the future. Yeah, no, they were they were terrible. They they felt they seemed to have no way of getting bats into the game. A little bit of post international break blues, but I think the he's, whole he's, thing he's happened. A, he's a baseball closer. You only put him on for the last three outs. Yeah, you don't have, you don't have him open the game. Yeah, I think Bakayoko is going to be a very good player. I think he's going to be a very good Premier League player. But you don't learn to play that position in the Premier League overnight. And so he was responsible for Chelsea's best thing, the goal. He was also responsible, I think, to some extent, for Chelsea's concession of that goal with the with the uh, putting Willian in trouble. Willian is not the player he was and to me the big thing going on at Chelsea is that Willian markedly a step slower you know you just saw him you know both two seasons ago when he was Chelsea's best player and last season when he played a little less but still played a significant part Willian would skip past players with the ball nobody could get the ball off him now he's literally will beat the first player he is almost always tackled by the second player he's just not the same Willian I know you listen to the pod when Davo talks about your freshman 15 let me just say cardigans cardigans <laughs> chunky cardigans they're your friend don't be yeah. afraid yeah, another no, no, one that, that is extraordinarily slimming that cardigan and then Hazard Davo yeah. season on yeah. season off it's like a field that must lie fallow to mm-hmm. regenerate its fertility I do find games like this make Chelsea fans frustrations read like an area start kill list Why did we sell Matic to a top four rival? Why did we fail to see through with KDB? How did we let Lukaku through our fingers? Why did we let Tommy Abraham? Van Ginkle, why? Van Ginkle. I've forgotten about Van Ginkle. Come back, Mikel. Yeah. Without Diego Costa, who's going to throw training bibs at our managers? Yeah. Chelsea and the US men's national team, David, I'll say this this week. Phenomenal parenting lesson. You, you asked me about how my wife approaches all of this. The US loss, we'll yeah. get to Everton in a minute. She did say to me this weekend when we were out for dinner, she said, the US men's national team and Chelsea, yeah. phenomenal parenting lesson. This, a taste of our other pod, Modern Parenting Today. I've been trying desperately to help my seven-year-old come to terms with the self-destruction of his heroes in the US men's national team. He loves him some DeAndre Yedlin, Oz. We spent the majority of the week talking together about how nothing in sport like this game read nothing in life is a gimme and so take nothing for granted dear listener take nothing for granted ever it's why sport is great and it's why at the end of the game i say the best league in the world and congratulations uh steve and everyone at Paris. congratulations roy i mean i think we have to give some a man who we have certainly had some fun at his expense roy has come into this club a club in trauma if you go through a traumatic event in your life, Rog, I have. which Past Premier week. League manager would you want to walk in to your front room and give you a cup of tea and make you feel better? It would be Roy. Roy is the perfect man for the job at this time at Palace. There's no other manager you'd want to come and console you. Tim Sherwood. 
he's not a Premier League manager he anymore. Does jokes, oh, he wouldn't. He would yell at you. He would <laughs> shout at you so hard. Uh, Roy has gone there. He's done a fantastic job. Oh, I think he's sure. got the players. Pull my finger. I know. Pull my finger. I think the, the players just don't want him to make him feel bad, and so they uh, so, so they're playing their hearts out for him. But uh, great job. Uh, by Roy and everybody at Palace. Talking about nothing being for granted, nothing's a gimme. Oh, the only thing that made this uh, weekend worth it after the Chelsea loss, Watford 2, Arsenal 1, after falling behind to a 13... Oh, ch- sorry, we should say, tune out now, Arsenal fans. Uh, you can fast forward for about five minutes while we talk about you. After falling behind to a 39th-minute header from the BFG per Metasaka, his first league goal in 1,400 days. Wow. Nicest man in football. The Orns came storming back, a dubious penalty call, yeah, very dubious, allowed Troy Deeney to convert from the spot on 71 minutes. And in the 92nd minute, Thomas William cleverly smashed home a rebound to complete the Arsenal capitulation. TWC! Oh, possibly the most Arsenal of Arsenal performances this season, especially when you bear in mind, since that August spanking at Liverpool, Wenger's team had quietly not conceded a goal. And with Chelsea, Liverpool, Man United all failing to win, this was their big chance to drag themselves back into that top four Pavlova. And they crapped it. <laughs> it's a Tradini. Oh, they scored first. They shut down like a Dell Dimension 8300 desktop. No Ramsey, no Sanchez, both out with international break fatigue. There was just no leadership, no drive, no evidence really of giving a crap to influence events. And it was Troy Deeney, Dave, who helped Watford enforce themselves on the game. He was like an earth mover, Fat Drake, when he arrived in the 62nd minute, all eerily akin to just watching the US in Trinidad and Tobago. He converted a controversial penalty to tie things up. I'll say this, we love Marco Silva, don't we, Dave? What he's done with this team. Yeah. We know his character acting career as well. (laughs) It's been amazing. He's just turned them into one of the most efficiently ruthless in the Premier League kind of mid-tier. In the last three games, they've conjured points in each one of them through late injury time goals. And so it was here. You can watch your dour crap football for 92 minutes only to get a last-minute adrenaline shot, David. Amazing. Yeah, and, and cleverly roofed it, Rog. I do believe you should get more than one goal for roofing it. Oh. This, was a, this was a roof from, from a, a player who you just don't expect to see do that. A heroic moment. For Tom Cleverley, Rog. The revamped, revitalised and reappreciated Tom Cleverley. Yeah. Watford up to fourth in a Champions League place. Only Man City have beaten them this season. Best start ever to a Premier League season for Harry the Hornets mob. But it was the post-match comments I found fascinating. Troy Deeney saying it wasn't the penalty which empowered Watford to win. It was, quote, having a bit of cojones. I think the word is, whenever I play against Arsenal, and this is just a personal thing, I go on and think, let me just whack the first one, and then we'll see who wants it. <laughs> what do you think about that, David? Bill Simmons, our friend, would refer to that as Arsenal's testicular fortitude, right? I'm just amazed that Troy Deeney used the word cojones. That's what I'm really impressed with. I think he probably pronounced it cajones. Yeah. But y- you said to me yesterday... If you give City, United and Spurs a Champions League place right now, you said that leaves one for Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal and Watford yeah. to battle over. It's going to be tough for Cronky's crew, right? It is going to be very, very tough. It's going to be viciously competitive for the that fourth qualifying place and even for the Europa League uh, Rod qualification. Oh, throughout the second half, Arsenal's away end chanted at Arsene Wenger, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. We'll just say... Thoughts and prayers to US men's national team fans who also support Arsenal. 
especially if you root for Columbus Crew or the oh. Washington Nationals or the Green Bay Packers in mm. addition. Tottenham won Bournemouth nil a ho-hum PDF. game. Highlighted by a 47th minute Christian Eriksen goal. Spurs stay third and most importantly get their first league win, Roger Wembley. <sighs> in a weekend in which Palace beat Chelsea and Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner were engaged. Who knew they were even <laughs> dating? Spurs win at home. The biggest shock of all. First Wembley league win of the season. Tottenham sitting uh, just off the Manchester teams in third. Burnley won. West Ham won. This is a good game though, Roger. A bit agricultural, <laughs> but it was a good game. Mikel Antonio gave the Hammers the lead in the 19th minute, latching onto a Joe Hart Hail Mary to put it past Nick Pope. But just eight minutes later... The irons were reduced to 10 men when Andy Carroll, who else, Rog, steamed into Ben Mee, elbows ablazing to collect his second yellow card of the game in 49,000th of his career. I think that's the accurate statistic. And in the 85th minute, Kiwi, Chris Wood, rose up and headed past Joe Hart to rescue a point for the Clarets. Dave Fishwick side flying high. Yeah, they've gone six top flight games without defeat for the first time since 1975. Astonishing. More astonishing, there were just 99 seconds between Andy Carroll's first yellow card and his second. Those of us who have erroneously opined that that gent is losing his pace, we've got to eat our words. Take that. Uh, Swansea 2, Huddersfield nil. The Swans dispatch the Terriers at home and move up to 13th ahead of four other teams also on eight points. Both goals in this one coming from Chelsea Loney, Tammy Abraham. Yeah, very close, very close range double. Needed those goals for his confidence. Goals, talking about confidence, dried up for Huddersfield. Failed to score in four consecutive games in all competitions. Please watch my Huddersfield films on NBC Sports on their website. They will make you fall in love with this club and their story. Deservedly so. Adore them. Wagner may be trying to take himself out of consideration for the US men's national team job <laughs> or making himself available. We'll see. The Saints come from behind twice, Rog. Southampton 2, Newcastle 2, thanks to Manolo Gabbiadini, whose haircut now makes him look like Shaggy from Scooby, was forced to get a job. His brace brings some much-needed offence to the South Coast. It's been a long time since Manolo Gabbiadini scored, Rog. <sighs> they are under-the-radar strugglers under Mauricio Pellegrino, the poor man's Mauricio. His team had failed to score in eight of their last nine Premier League home games, so I guess this was progress. Big news for Newcastle. They've been put up for sale by their controversial owner, Mike Ashley. Let's buy them, David. Let's buy them, GFOPs. Mm, not too terrified of the fans, <laughs> Roger. That's not a team uh, I would buy. I do hope, sincerely, it's such a great club. I hope that the person who buys that club can really put some money into it and can connect with those fans. When that came on the news the other day, and they said they were for sale. My, my son looked at me like he did on Sunday when we saw cats being given away on the street outside Petco. He said, can we have a cat? I was like, no. <laughs> they turned about Newcastle for sale. Thank you. He goes, can we find Newcastle? I was like, no. no. <laughs> can we have a cat? <laughs> no. Can we find Newcastle then? No. So funny. Leicester won. West Brom won. Goals from the Baggies, Nasser Chadley and Leicester's Riyad Mahrez, Rod, split the spoils on Monday night in the Midlands. And early this morning, the world learned that Craigers Shakespeare has been sacked. Mm-hmm. Arlo White had told the board he had to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Arlo. Cue a last barrage of Shakespeare tragedy pun headlines for old time's sake. God, those Leicester owners, they don't muck around, do they? They don't. I mean, their play's been a bit dire. One victory, 10 Premier League games, just three wins all season, two mm. of those in the Carabao Cup. 
at Phil Kaidel kind of captured the apathy that set in at the King Power when he tweeted yesterday, watching Vardy, Mares, Morgan, Fuchs and Schmeichel meander off the pitch tonight reminds me of seeing the spin doctors leave the stage years after Pocket Full of Kryptonite came out. <laughs> That's so funny. Carlo uh, Ancelotti immediately linked to not, the job. Not Bruce Arena. Oddly enough, not linked. Okay. Dilly ding. Dilly yeah. dong. Uh, Brighton won. Everton won. Rog, Come Everton back, Arsenal fans. Storm you can back to this part, from behind bastard. to claim a quality point on the road thanks to a 90th minute Wazza penalty. Roger. Which I was hoping he'd miss. Discuss. Less Eight whole points. Eight whole points. Yeah, less a game. It was more a reckoning for yeah. Ronald Koeman's limping squad at kickoff. I was hoping for the best, fearing for the worst. And this was against Brighton, David. Bloody Brighton. Against who? Koeman had oddly elected to field two defensive midfielders. I watched the game with my seven-year-old Oz, who's broken his hand this week playing football at the weekend. And he's got this bright orange cast on his arm on which he's written two messages in Sharpie himself. The first is on the broken fingers. It says in huge letters, I like snacks. <laughs> I'm with him there. And the second, down like the, uh-huh. the, the top of his arm, it says in huge childish scroll. Fire Cumin! <laughs> <laughs> so bless the truth of innocence. I'd say this game was awful to watch. <laughs> there was no evident game plan. I just sat there waiting for the boom to drop, which it did thanks to Brian's Anthony Knockhart. Uh, and going 1-0 down, it made me pen the below in pain. You've got to read it, Davo, because it hurts too much for me. Okay, just as I prepare to read it. And Do you think t- in a top, parallel universe, to the, to the, there is a kid who's got a car somewhere that says... I don't like snacks and and win it for Cuban. Win it for Cuban. <laughs> Fire Cuban. Okay, these are Roger's words that I, I read aloud. I've never loved you more. I tell you, you already have a tear in your eye and haven't even started reading yet. Watching Everton used to be the joy of my week, a respite, an escape, an occasional wonder. Irrespective of the score, you were guaranteed 90 minutes of collective endeavour and tenacity, often in the face of stiff odds. Stiff odds. This season's Everton are unrecognisable. The club have stumbled into a lethargic stupor of brain-dead decision-making in which the players toil with little evidence of tactical game plan, cheer or care. To watch is to suffer grimly. A corrosive, toxic game-day experience without an upside. That's how this pod feels to me very often, Rog. One that leaves <laughs> any supporter in a numb puddle of anger and despondency and worst, short-tempered with all those around you whom you love. Manchester by the sea, Johnny Cash's hurt or Cormac McCarthy's The Road lift the spirits more. I mean, to be honest, Rog. It's so weird this is the happiest, you be so negative. This is the happiest you've ever been doing this podcast at the point that this is the way you feel about your team. In years when you felt better about your team, you've been far more unbearable in person. So funny. You make me sound like in their great escape when they've been captured. Totally. And they look at each other and say, In many ways, I've never been happier. <sighs> you just nailed it, David. And then they get mown down by the machine guns. <laughs> yeah, that's where I to yeah. go. That's how I always wanted us yeah. to go. Oh, I've got to say, Everton this season, watching them as much as I do, they remind me of one of those... Cautionary tales about factory workers who win the lottery and then fritter away their fortune almost overnight. You know the 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 front of the Smith single, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, has oh, yeah. that, that great, I think she was Mancunian, Viv Nicholson, the woman on the front, 
who blew a pile of cash in four years and ended right back where she began. And that pretty nails it for Everton under Farhad Mashiri. I was happy in the haze of a drunken hour, but God, heaven knows I'm miserable now. Ten months since Everton tasted victory in a Premier League match away from Goodison. This was simply the worst footballing week of my life. The US men's national team are terrible. Everton are worse. But you're still a good person, Rog. And you'll always have Togger. You had another great week this week, Rog. You finished 114th in our league, moving up to 90th on the season. That's out of almost 16,000 GFOPs. This week's winner, T. Wilson, 17, played a Man City heavy lineup, smart, that led him to 190 points. If you haven't signed up for our Fantasy League yet, what are you doing? All the details are on meninblazers.com. In MLS, Rog. If ever there was a time for guitar slides and screeching eagles, it is now. We're just days away from the final round of MLS's regular season. This Sunday, 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 playoff berths and buys hang in the balance. Yeah, big one. Real Salt Lake, San Jose and the sadly imploding Dallas battle for the final playoff spot. All the games kick off at 4 p.m. Eastern time with a whip around. Whip around! (laughs) Show on ESPN starring the mighty... TT, Taylor Twelman. Mm. Massive Mazeltoff to the Portland Thorns. Trying to get all my positive American soccer news in at one time, Dave. They outlasted the best-named team in pro sports, North Carolina Courage, in the NWSL final in Orlando. God, it was a physical, robust affair. Lindsay Horan netted a second-half winner for the Thorns, who've averaged a remarkable 17,678 fans per home game this season. Deserve glory for that alone. Mazeltoff also to the US men's national team under 17s. Yes, Rog. Quarter final of the under 17 World Cup are underdog baby Nats. Maybe we should just claim them as the national team proper. They obliterated previously unbeaten Paraguay 5 0, wow. thanks to a hat trick from son of George Timothy Weir. So many standout performances, especially Atlanta United's Andrew Carlton, playmaker at the heart of much that was good. One goal, three assists. I'll just say the United States, we needed this win so badly. And now the quarterfinals beckon on Saturday in Goa. They're playing England. Oh, that's amazing. Rog, England, who actually managed to win a penalty shootout against Japan uh, in their own last 16 game. Amazing. England versus US. Baby Nats versus the baby Englanders. All right, we've held off long enough. We've got to delve back into the week-long sting of our nation's men's national team World Cup nightmare, Dave. Yeah, here we go, Rod. Since we last emergency podded, fallen saviour Bruce Arena has resigned. A new temporary manager has not yet been announced. Though the US are lining up opponents for November friendlies. Oh, they're going to play Portugal, Rod. Sounds yeah, with tough. the Washington Generals. And in a surreal conference call with reporters Friday, US soccer president for life, it seems, Sunil Galati, Heismaned reporters who pretty much spent close to an hour asking variations of, are you really not going to resign? What is going on, Rogelio? Oh, Bruce Arena first, David. He did the noble thing. He resigned. After a tenure which was possibly the worst sequel I've seen since Speed 2 Cruise Control. CONCACAF game just moved on tactically so greatly since the 1990s, 2000s. He just seemed out of his depth in that running. And watching him was like the moment any kid realises their parents are not gods but do indeed have clay feet. I interviewed Bruce with J-Dubs back in March when he'd just taken over. Every question I asked, he kind of just answered 
me by pursing his lips and just saying, I know what I'm doing. I've done it before. And we left the interview wondering if he was just some kind of natural player whisperer or there was an emperor has no clothes situation going on. Sadly, it seems like the latter, a real worrying symbol of the extent to which the quality of American coaching has to play catch up to the rest of the world. Who will replace Bruce Arena now, Dave? Subject of a lot of conversation. And the rumour mill is churning. Former French manager Laurent Blanc has been linked. Please let this one be true, though, Dave. Sam Allardyce today said, yeah, very interested in the job to ESPN. Just think of the number of jobs that will be added to the pie industry sector alone, Dave. Jobs, jobs, jobs. What do you think? Oh, I don't know what to think. I think the first thing, and there's obviously, we'll talk about Sunil in a second, there's an obsession always in American sports with coaches and GMs, owners, when I think this has a lot more to do with the players. And the players didn't want Jürgen, and I'm not judging them on that. I wasn't there at training. I didn't see what was going on. He was like a donor organ but, that was rejected but, by the host body. But they were very, very happy when Bruce came in. They liked, They were comfortable with Bruce. They were very, very comfortable with Bruce. And I feel ultimately what I was thinking about the whole time watching that TNT game was these are the players. This is the performance they're putting in for their manager who they were so happy to go and have. There's a lot of player power on that U.S. men's national team. It's been allowed to grow over many years. And I think it's going to have to be a strong personality who's going to come in is going to have to not be there's no point in hiring somebody who's going to yell at the players who's not going to be there but it's got to rebuild trust there aren't 22 new players to go and form a squad a lot of the players who were involved in this world cup qualifying campaign are still going to have to play over the next four years a lot of them not just the kid there aren't like 21 others that we can go and introduce next to Pulisic a manager is going to have to get the best out of them and it's Therefore, I'm looking at some of this, so these sort of new authoritarians. Like a, a guy like with a personality, he's not available. But a guy like Poch, he seems to be a player manager, but also has a strong sense of discipline of what you can and what you can't do. And I feel like the U.S. need one of these younger managers who still has that discipline of an old school manager. I mean, in truth, there's no rush to make this appointment. I mean, we should really wait until after the World Cup when the pool of possible appointees will swell as everyone leaves or is fired. And just some random thoughts now. It's important to recognise international football, it's a weird beast. The best managers, they want to be involved in club football. Yeah. Jose Mourinho always says, international football, end of my career. Yeah. It's why David Wagner is not looking right now to become the US coach. Club football, where you train with players every single day, that's where the best cut their teeth. International football, bar Antonio Conte in his Italian days, mm. it's really viewed as a role for aging coaches or lesser ones who don't mind not working with their players very much at all during the season. And the second thing is, it's so important for the US to get a manager who understands the US mindset. Jurgen Klinsmann always, he always admitted mostly that the US player's mind just works differently to those who were born in Europe. It's not better or worse. It's just completely different, different experience pushing through to the elite level and it needs someone who can appreciate that difference and learn how to motivate the players in their different mental state to man manage it positively and so that, that that's why this disappointment to me is utterly crucial you cannot just take someone from Europe plug them in and expect the interaction to be positive who do you like Rog that is an amazing question I would wait Dave to see exactly what cards are available after the World Cup. But if you made me 
appoint someone right now, it would have to be someone who both has the respect of the American player, has the motivation to excel, uh, but also understands the idiosyncrasies of the American game. And I think I look at Atlanta, I look at what Tata Martino, it's crazy yeah. that Tata Martino decided to arrive in America. It's crazier that he understood completely just through incredibly thorough research how the American game works. And he's worked out how to squad build almost instantly. And people who are close to him talk about him having that extra motivation after his perceived Argentina debacle. Mm. He's got a lot more to prove yet again at the international level. Mm. And that would be a, uh, that, that would be a pick I would receive with wonder mm. and excitement and PDF. Mm. There's only one man for the job as far as I'm concerned, Rod Ray Hudson. Ray Hudson <laughs> for US men's national team manager. Oh, crazy Ray. Absolutely. I'm all in on that. In terms of Sunil Galati, yeah. Friday's conference call, Dave, I'll be honest, it was pretty depressing. Sunil opened by saying, I take responsibility for us not getting the job done. And then he was asked just three minutes later if he's going to resign. And he said, I do not plan to resign. Responsibility, not so much responsibility. He sounded very much like a man who plans to cling on to his role of president with the prospect of a US World Cup 2026 within touching distance. He's like Gollum, wanting that ring, precious. And when asked why he wasn't resigning, he said, we've got a lot on our agenda. That World Cup bid that's due in March is dark, Davo. 54 days for nominations to challenge Sunil at the next election because it does sound like he's going to stand again and counting. We know a lot of people in US soccer who've been considering the role, some better quaffed than others, mm -hmm. Carl Martino. But the fact that it's a putatively volunteer job, it almost seems like no one of any real standing is going to step into the ring. No, it is. And it is an unpaid position. And I I mean, the one thing, this isn't a defense of Sunil. I suppose this is more a criticism of the American soccer media is I think there's been too little. Suddenly, everybody is like Sunil out. The entire press conference, as you said, was people asking for like where he's going. But... Where has all that questioning been really over the last four to eight years of US soccer and the direction? And it does seem like a lot of people have suddenly decided the direction all along has been wrong. But while the US was still getting to a World Cup and feeling like, okay, now we're ready to go and take on the best nations, that we're just like one step away from taking on the best nations in the world, that everything has been okay. And I think a lot of people have suddenly woken up. It's not bad to like get there late, but to then expect that you can then put pressure on the top guy to go and step down just because you're asking the question now because you're disappointed with what happened. I think it's tough. Look, for me, world football, I'm sure Brazil won a lot of World Cups. Italy won a lot of World Cups when they weren't superbly organized. I'm sure if you'd have interviewed those soccer federations, they wouldn't have been incredible. I'm not saying that the U.S. Soccer Federation shouldn't be incredibly organized. But the reality of winning World Cups is you need outstanding, outstanding players. And I think a lot of this conversation needs to be about less focus on exactly who the people are and more focus on just player development and unearthing the soccer players in this country, so that we really feel, believe me, I don't buy all this soccer haters argument of, oh, if we just get our country's best athletes playing, it's going to be there. But I do not believe that our current system is finding the best young Americans to go and play soccer in this country. I just don't believe it's happening. That is not something that's going to solve and win the US the World Cup in five years time, or even necessarily in eight years time. But the best kids to represent this country 
are going to have to go out and represent this country because the best kids in every other country are going to go out and represent their countries at football. So you are okay with the decision makers who are going to oversee the changes that you would like to see? Better scouting, better coaching, better identification of talent. You're okay with those decision makers being the same ones who brought us the debacle that has been this 2018 journey? Well, two things. One, no, but I think the focus, I think that's a process. I doubt that there's a candidate right now. Had there been a candidate for eight years banging on about the changes that need to happen in US soccer, I would have more faith in those candidates. And that's not to say we know some of the people who've been into doing it. And it's not that their it's not that their points aren't correct, but they have not been running on this for eight years. And frankly, until they pay this position, until they make this a professionalized position, no one worth their salt is going to be incentivized. I know I sound like a terrible capitalist, but no one worth their salt is going to go and do this without it being a paid position. But I do think that there are a lot of things can happen in this country and around this game, around player identification and player development that actually are not f- solely dependent on who is the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. That is the big issue for the U.S. going forward, player development, player identification. I think Sunil is going to continue to be the king. I mean, many people may now be saying that U.S. soccer, like the U.S., you could say, has a president problem. American outlaws sound like they're going to become increasingly vocal, speaking out against the president of the team that they love. But I can't see Sunil being forced to leave against his will. And it's because American soccer is a happy time sport. In times of darkness, the vast majority of Americans just do not want to know. Apathy just kicks in. 90% of our nation do not know who Sunil Galati is. No matter have an opinion on whether he should stay or where he should go. And I think part of my sadness over the last week is the realisation that we're still a small sport that exists largely in the shadows in the United States. A lack of kind of front page outcry about the failure of the team. And, you know, they failed and now it's done. It's over. Chuck Blazer understood this. He can operate here in America still in football circles, in the shadows. And Sunil will cling on because there's just no external pressure outside of our soccer bubble for him to have to do anything else. I will say if there was a challenger, we, Davo, Roger, Davido, Rogelio, we would definitely host a presidential debate, Chris oh, Wallace style. to do that. Oh, well, do you know he's a prophet to me, retrospectively? Who? Gus Johnson. Hmm. He knew the US wasn't going to reach the World Cup. He just packed his soccer journey in years ahead of the rest of us. So actually, you know, the point you make about it being a sport where, you know, you're constantly craving attention, you're craving popularity. A, a conversation that you and I have had off the pod, off the TV show, has been about look actually looking inward at ourselves and asking the question, like, are we also part of the problem? It's been tough to criticize this team and this program because there's a feeling that, like, we can't speak ill of something. Like, the rest of the soccer-hating world in America in America is going to come and criticize this team. So we've got to go and defend them. We've got to build them up. We've got to go and boost them. It's been tough for the outlaws as they've been, like, cheering for this team to go and be critical in any way. It's been tough for people in the sports media. I completely understand. It's they're fighting for, you know column inches they're fighting for space they want to go and tell a good story about this team but i do think that the that the next phase of this is we've got to be able to part of making this a truly competitive team is to be able to be critical and take that on and that sort of critical analysis i think is more important than there is a sense often that like one leader can step up and that one leader can go and make all the difference it isn't it's a community a lot of people have got to come in and change their thinking uh, for this to go a different way 
Oh, football, bloody football. It's so random. It's all so close. Rog. We need to know more. We need to understand more. We need to be more active. I will throw in one personal pain that I've got that I'm gutted about. Yeah. I am bummed, Dave, because, and I can say this now, had to keep this a secret, but it's uh, done. You and I had spoken to Aaron Dessner of The National, Austin yeah. Brown of Parquet Courts, Chris Thompson of Vampire Weekend, and Samuel T. Herring of Future Islands to form a supergroup to record what is standard in England growing up, what's standard in many European countries for the World Cup team to record a World Cup single for the United States we of America. We still do it, Rog. <laughs> and that's it. And you asked me what my wife's been saying to pick me up. We were going to go into a studio and record with US soccer figures a World Cup single for charity. My wife's like, just go in the studio and record a US, no- down. Record a US non-World down Cup single. A US non-World Cup single. She said we should record cover versions of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car and I can't make you love me if you don't on the other <laughs> side. <laughs> we get Carl Beckerman in with his guitar. It'd be magic. Oh, it'd be lovely. The winner of the coveted Guinness Men and Blazers Poet Philosopher Sacker Scribe Raven of the Week is Nick in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, God. Rog, I Hello, hope this darkness, email my old friend. finds you well, even though I know Rog isn't. I find myself <laughs> writing in a dark time in my sports fandom. Coming off the crushing results that left the US men's national team out of the World Cup, my Cleveland Indians broke my heart, blowing another big series lead. Arsenal had inspired hope only to crush my soul again in another all-too-familiar way. And now my Packers have had the only dreams I had left turn into nightmares as Aaron Rodgers appears to be done for the season. I come to you asking for a ruling on the greatest sports fan question. Is it really better to have loved and lost than to have not loved at all? If you're a crew fan... This is probably written before the news of last night. Yeah. I think your thoughts are going to be more positive than mine, David. On that, 19 out of 20 Premier League teams will have lost the Premier League this season. All over the world, like the number of teams who win versus the number of teams who lose, it's way less. Losing is actually the normal in all sport. Everyone loses. I remember when I was a kid, I remember we used to have those speech days where the old governors and... uh, trustees would come down to the school yep. and, they'd, and, th- and they would read all the amazing results that the under-14 Colts had had during the cricket season and that they'd won this game. Stedman Jones and I remember once this, this, out. I remember this once this old governor of the school who stood up to go and award the Hamp Prize for English speaking and he stood up and said, somewhere deep in the countryside there's a school that loses all its sports games at every level in every age group <laughs> it's very true it's like that everybody ultimately wants to be a winner and pretend they're a winner yeah i back winning teams i'm winning but everybody loses i love it rog oh, it's a it's Dave, sport it's for Dave, losers. it's why we love it it's Dave, why we occasionally you get that. a win can... it's when we occasionally get a win it's amazing look you... at my weekend i've i've won as a chelsea fan we've won more over the last 13 seasons that i could ever imagine having won in my life and still I'm humbled this weekend. We go to Crystal Palace. We've not won a game or scored a goal all season and we go and lose. Sport, loving sport is about dealing with loss and disappointment all the time. That's what it is. Having gone to the school of which your (laughs) board of trustee was talking about, the school somewhere where they've lost Lost every every single game. I mean, I went to that school. I have lived my life by that code, Dave. I'd answer it somewhat differently. I stand by it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. I think it's better to have loved and lost, but to lose, you have to qualify. You're really asking, we didn't qualify. We don't even get the right to lose. And that's what is so dark and unique about this moment that we're sharing 
as United States men's national team fans, we're really trying to work out what did we lose over the past week. For me, two things we lost, which are damning and hurting. Number one, the unshakable belief that soccer's rise in this country is just an upward line and an unstoppable upward line. I mean, the foundations of that belief, that creed, it is a creed for me, have been utterly shattered. And second, and I am distraught, Dave, because World Cups give us, World Cups, win or lose in them, they give us some of the most definitive collective sporting memories that form the spines of our life. Like I do, if you ask me about 1997, I go to the nearest World Cup to locate it in my own biography. Where no. was I in 1990? Oh, yeah. Okay, I got 1990. They do. Every single World Cup gives us something. And for American fans, we've enjoyed them. Colombia 94, US Iran 1998. They don't have to be happy memories. They're just incredibly formative. USA Mexico 2002, Algeria, Landon Donovan 2010, USA Belgium 2014. And what we've lost this past week it's to, the opportunity to add to our collective memories that we can share with, with friends, with lovers, with children, with our children, with this nation of putative soccer fans to come, especially young ones. That has been totally lost. So I've been trying to grapple with that. And I joked at the top of the show that this is US soccer's Dunkirk. I just say to you, Nick, something Davo often says to me in times of darkness, words of Churchill, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts against Portugal in a game that really doesn't matter in November. We'll oh, be there. We're going to have some cracking friendlies. And then there's an alternative <laughs> facts World Cup. It is weird. I mean, look, I know as an England fan, we've missed World Cups all throughout my childhood in 74 and 78. Uh, missed the World Cup in 94. Yeah, it's tough to go through those tournaments. And yet... Part of loving football is you're still going to enjoy the World Cup. You're going to love the World Cup. Roger and I on Telemundo, it's going to be amazing. Um, I can't wait for the World Cup still. And that's very little to do with England, who I have no faith are going to do anything at this World Cup. No belief, no hope. I almost don't want England to play in the World Cup because I know how embarrassing <laughs> it's going to be to watch England play at the World Cup. But I love the World Cup. It's still going to be incredible. And it's going to be fun to watch the US re build. Okay, your weekend looks like this, Roger. 10 a.m. Saturday, Man City hosts Burnley while United travel to Huddersfield. And a massive day on Sunday is Everton, Rog, host Arsenal <laughs> at 8.30. That's followed by Tottenham versus Liverpool at 11 a.m. All of those games on the NBC family of networks. And Fire later Kuma. Sunday, with every game kicking off. I like snacks. snacks. <laughs> with every game kicking off at 4 p.m. Eastern time. It's the final day of MLS's regular season. Whip around. Check your local listing to see who your squad plays. There are many ways to connect to us, including our now extinct Amazon Emporium, which used to keep the show going. Since Amazon has done away with the partner program, we're just talking about crap we like and posting <laughs> links to them on our website, meninblazers.com. We're just we... trying to help a little company called yeah. Amazon find its footing. Just yeah. doing charity. We know charity. We no longer get a tiny percentage. It allows us to cover the cost of creating the show. What are you putting in the Emporium this week, Roger? A book. Oh. A book for how I feel right now, David. Oh. John Green. Yeah. Turtles all the way down. Mm. We've both got that book, haven't we? Because he sent it to us. It's the yeah. best book you'll read this year. Yeah. Written by a Liverpool-loving great mm -hmm. friend of the pod. I think it's number one on yeah. that little company that we try and help called Amazon. Mm -hmm. As I type, 
and rightfully so. It really is a novel that our age cries out for. It is putatively about characters on a journey, on a search, but really it's about teenage friendships. It's about love and it's about mental health, the subject on which John Green speaks about ardently and bravely. The book, it's sadder than US soccer. John Green for US soccer president. If you only read one book this year, make it this one. It's a modern masterpiece. Uh, Rog. Um, Dabbo. Yeah, I'm... I- Occasionally I get criticised when I put in uh, supplements that I take or anything that I take that makes me feel better. But I feel uh, I'm, I'm not saying that this is going to work for everyone. I have no idea of the science. I just know just that the there, are certain again. Things, there are certain things that you take that make you feel better or make you go better, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Psyllium husk. Rog, it's a modern miracle. It's a modern marvel. P-S-Y-L. L-I-U-M, psyllium, whole husk psyllium. You can get organic whole husk psyllium. You can get it at Whole Foods. You can get it at Thrive Market. It's all sorts of places all over the web. It's pretty cheap. Just a little bit of this in your favorite shake or smoothie, a little bit of psyllium husk. I don't know how it works, Rog, but it does wonders. It does does wonders. Psyllium husk. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of player Arsenal would bring on in the last minute of a game, a young 17-year-old. He's the future. Psyllium husk. Or it's like a, 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 a team that have done very well in the Bulgarian league <laughs> and have qualified for the Europa. You might be confused, Rog, but there are people out there, I'm telling you, if you're using a lot of toilet paper, go instead for the psyllium husk. <laughs> I'm excited I'm knocking everything off the table. Clean as a whistle. Rog. Oh, I'm so confused. And if you're confused too, listeners, listen to our other podcast, Modern <laughs> Excretion Today, where Dave has just done a five-and-a-half-hour special. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so impressed I bought the company. Uh, okay, Rog, visit menandblazers.com to sign up for our newsletter, which we produce with our partner Guinness. A new issue is going out this Friday in which we memorialize American Stadia's answer to the beat-up clunker in your driveway you just can't bring yourself to get rid of. RFK Stadium. Oh, Follow us I on Twitter. To this weekend, by the at way, Men in Blazers, at Embassy Davies, at Rog Bennett on Instagram, at Men in Blazers, at Embassy underscore Davies on Facebook. Uh, that's Men in Blazers. You can always send your ravens to the crap part of Soho. You can always email us at Men in Blazers at gmail.com. Of the toilet roll lobby. They're very powerful. <laughs> no, I'm not at all. I'm really not at all. Vendorpunk Rog. War pig. Who wants to sex my dumbo? Tuisions. Balls win. Balls win. Take that, Gloria. Oh, balls lose. Oh, to Tweed. Abrogado, rock on, mate. Kung Fu Fight in America. Love you, Davo. I love your chunky cardigan. And I like snacks. <laughs> Fuck, human. <laughs>